The scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 20. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who set aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. At the, at the very heart of the gospel is this amazing announcement that Christ died for sinners. It's amazing because we're all sinners. We're all broken. We all fall short of God's standards of goodness, and yet God doesn't stop loving us. So He sent His Son to die in our place. And so whenever anyone turns to Christ and trusts in Him, they're forgiven, completely forgiven, and they are eternally accepted by God. One, one way to say that is that we are not saved by our works, right? Our good works, we are saved by grace. And that's the good news. That's the gospel. Now, when you hear that message, a question that might come to mind, in fact, this is a question I think will naturally come to mind, is this. If I am saved by grace, does it matter how I live? You ever, you ever, you ever think that? If you never thought that, you're probably not paying attention, all right? If I'm saved by grace, does it matter? I mean, think about it. If we're already forgiven, who cares what we do, right? If we're, if we're, if we're already accepted by God, what difference does it really make if, if we obey Him? That's, that's just the question that, that naturally comes to mind when you hear the gospel. In fact, the Bible itself asks that question. Romans chapter 6 or chapter 5 says, um, shall we sin so that grace will increase? I mean, why, why obey anymore, right? Well, this passage is one of those places in the Bible, and there are many, that addresses that question. This, this passage is taken from the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that Jesus taught to His disciples, and in these verses, He discusses the relationship between a follower of Christ and God's law, God's moral law. He tells us, he tells us the role of obedience in the life of a believer. And in doing this, you could say that Christ tells us two things. He tells us that 
Christians obey. And he tells us why Christians obey. In other words, he, he talks here about the importance of obedience to his followers, and he talks about our motivation for obeying. So first, for, for the believer in Christ, obedience to God is very, very important. I mean, we just know this. That you would agree, right? As Christians, we, we should never use God's mercy as an excuse to disobey His Word, right? In other words, grace is not a license to sin. Jesus says here in verse 18 and 19, He says, truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, he said, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what, what is Jesus talking about when he says these commands? Well, if you, if you keep on reading after this, he immediately begins to expound on um, some, some of the, the Ten Commandments. He talks about uh, what it means to obey, obey God's moral law. And we know that God has given us rules in His, in His Word, rules about how we use our speech, rules about how we use our bodies, rules about how we treat the poor, how, how we... Uh, respond to those in authority, th th these rules that are summarized for us in the Ten Commandments, God's moral law. And Jesus here is teaching us that in the new covenant, God, these rules still apply to us. God's, God's moral law is not nullified in the New Testament. In fact, if you read the New Testament, you see that God's moral law, it's, it's, it's reinforced in the writings of the apostles. So, for example, um, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, he wrote this. He said, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The Apostle John said something similar, 1 John 2. He said, we know that we've come to know Christ if we keep His commands. Whoever says, I know Him, but doesn't do what He commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. Ro Romans chapter 3 tells us that when we live by faith in Christ, it says we don't nullify the law. It says, rather, we uphold the law. So for the believer in Christ obedience to God is very important. You notice Jesus says here in verse 13, He says, you are the salt of the earth. Salt is a preservative. It can keep food from, from rotting, right? Salt is also a spice. It adds flavor to a meal. And, and Christ here, He's saying to His church, He's saying, listen, you're the salt of the earth. In other words, the, the kind of impact that salt has on food you can have on the world in which you live. And, and, and we see this when Christians live joyful, um, obedient lives that have been transformed by the gospel. Their presence in any society, it, it kind of, it, well, it functions like salt. It preserves that society, preserves a culture from injustice. It preserves a culture from moral decline. And it flavors that culture with the goodness of Christ. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but, did you notice? He goes on, he says, but 
if the salt loses its saltiness, in other words, if, if there's no discernible difference between the values and the behaviors of Christians and, and those of the surrounding culture, if, if, for example, if Christians are just as materialistic as everyone else, or if, if Christians are just as self-absorbed as anyone else, if Christians are just as judgmental, sometimes they're more judgmental, Right? Or, or if, if Christians are, are just as indifferent to the needs of the poor and, and, and the refugee as anyone else in a society, he says if salt loses its saltiness, it's no longer good for anything, except, I guess, as ice melt. They didn't have ice melt back then, but just he said to be thrown on the ground, trampled on underfoot. It's, it's good for nothing. He, he goes on in verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. A, a light is designed to do what? To shine. If you turn on a lamp, you don't cover it with a blanket. No, Jesus says you put it on a stand, so it lights up the whole room. And he says in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify God, your Father in heaven. Why, why would Jesus feel the need to exhort us to let our light shine? Well, I think he knew that uh, sometimes it's not easy in this world to let people know that you belong to Jesus, that you stand for the kingdom. In the verses right before this, Jesus talked about those times when people insult you and they persecute you and they, they say all kinds of evil things about you because of Him. When you get canceled because of your, your stand for Christ, it's not, it's not easy to let your light shine, to stand publicly for Christ. In fact, sometimes, would you agree, it's easier just to kind of keep your mouth shut and blend in. Just go along with what everyone's saying, compromise on a, a few things here or there. But the, the Christians understand we can't do this, right? We can't compromise. Jesus said in verse 19, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands, even if, you know, adhering to this command is going to make you very unpopular, he said anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So, so for followers of Christ, obedience to, to God's moral laws revealed in Scripture is so important. That those who follow Christ will, will desire and strive to obey Him. Listen, you know that doesn't mean we'll never struggle, right? Doesn't mean we'll never fail, but it does mean if you've come to know Christ, your desire will be to honor Him obey Him. Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, He said, if you love me, keep my commands. So what do we see in this passage? First, we see that Christians obey. Secondly, we see why. Why Christians? What, what is the motivation for Christian obedience? It, it, if you look at verse 17 with me, verse 17 has puzzled me all week long thinking about this passage. What Jesus says in verse 17 is just so weird so surprising. He says in verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's so strange. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law. Now, here's why this is weird. Jesus was a first century Jewish rabbi, all right? He was a religious teacher. He would teach in the synagogues, he would teach out in, in the open fields. People would travel for miles and miles to hear him teach them about God. They would ask him questions about the Scripture. <laughs> so why would a rabbi say, 
Hey, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. Why would, it, why would, it even, why would he even feel the need to say that? Let me illustrate. Let's imagine, all right, next week you decide to watch the Super Bowl. You turn on the pregame show. There's this whole line of sports analysts standing together shoulder to shoulder. These are men who've dedicated their entire life to football. They played when they were little boys. They played in high school. They played in college. They played in the pros. Since retiring, all they do is ever talk about football, football, football. Can you imagine? You turn it on, they say, listen, don't think that we've come to abolish football. Why would they say that? There'd be no need, nobody even thinking that. Or you go to Lincoln Center to see a concert, right? The orchestra is on the platform. All the musicians are tuning up their, their, their instruments. Right before they begin to perform some piece by Beethoven or something, the conductor turns around and says to everyone, we just want you to know we are not anti-music. They, they would never say that because no one would be thinking that. So what was it about Jesus that had people thinking? Why did he feel he had to explain? I didn't come to abolish the law. Why would a Jewish rabbi ever say that? Let me tell you why. Because he is so merciful. He's so merciful. Do you know that? He is so compassionate towards people who've fallen into sin. He is so patient towards people who are still struggling. He's so willing to forgive. He's so full of grace and mercy. I mean, you know, that, that, that's why he had to, has to clarify this subject. He, he just loves sinners. In fact, um, in, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus mentions that those who hated him, they would mock him. They would call him friend of sinners. You're a friend of sinners. Jesus said, I wear that like a badge of honor. I love them. Yes, they're my friends. So why would a rabbi ever have to say, I'm not here to abolish the law? Because everywhere he went, he just poured out mercy, mercy, mercy. And that's what motivates Christians to, to obey God to want to follow Him. Why, why do people who know Jesus, who know they've been saved by grace, they're forgiven, they're accepted, they don't have to prove anything to God, why do they still want to, to honor Him? Is it to get God to love us? No, he, he already loves us. Is it to get God to accept us? We're already accepted. Is it, uh, is it because we have to? No, <laughs> because something has happened in here we want to. You know what I'm talking about? It reminds me of that, uh, a scene from that old movie, Forrest Gump. Remember Forrest Gump? There, there, there's a season of his life where Forrest, he gets into jogging, right? So he starts running. He runs all the way across the country, turns around, runs all the way across the country, runs across the country. He's out there, run, he's a running fool, right? And so everybody notices this, and, and the reporters gather around, and they hold up the microphones. They say, Mr. Gump, Mr. Gump, why are you doing this? Are you running for world peace? Are you doing this to end the war? Are you doing this for women's rights? And remember Forrest, he goes, I just felt like running. I just felt like, why am I running? I want to. And, and the Christian will give an answer very similar to that to her friends who ask you, ask her, why, why are you, why are, listen, why do you forgive people who hurt you? I want to. Why, why do you give your money to the poor? I want to. 
Why, why are you reserving sexual intimacy for the covenant of marriage? I want to. Why is it that you never want to gossip with us? Because that's the way I want to live. And so finally her friends say, all right, we give. Why do you want to live this way? And she says, oh, I thought you'd never ask. Can I tell you about Jesus? There's someone who loves me even though I'm unlovable. There's someone who's forgiven me even though I deserve his anger. There's someone who gave up his life so that I could have his life. There's someone who loves me that much. And if he gives me a rule, I trust that it's for my good. And if he gives me a rule, oh, I want to honor him. Why am I living this way? I just felt like it, right? I want to. That's, that's, that's what motivates. Do you understand that? That's why Christians obey. Romans chapter 2 says, it says, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, not the harshness. So next time you feel the urge to shame someone or scold someone because of the way they're living, would you just remember it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance? Titus chapter 2 says it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and, and worldly passions. It's the grace of God that teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. God's, God's grace is what motivates us to obey Him. I think that's what Christ is talking about in the last verse, verse 20. He says this, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of, of heaven. You probably know about the Pharisees. They were so fastidious in their obedience. They were, so, they, they, they were like obsessive about obeying every single rule in the book. What did Jesus say, mean when he said you've got to surpass them? He did not mean that you have to somehow surpass them in the quantity of your obedience. He meant, no, something about the quality of your obedience has to be so different. See, here, here's what I mean. You, you know this. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they obeyed God's word because they thought, they thought that obedience was the way to earn God's favor. And so because they thought obedience was the way to earn God's favor, they, they really only worried about obeying the letter of the law, just kind of going through the motions externally. And Jesus comes along and pours out mercy on sinners and says, you don't have to do anything to gain God's favor. I'll do everything for you. I, I will take your sin to the cross. I will give my righteousness to do. I will do everything for you. You don't have to do anything to earn God's favor. And, and Jesus says, once you realize that you're not going to only worry about keeping the letter of the law, you, there'll be something in you just says, I, I, want to, I want to keep the spirit of the law from my heart, right? Which, by the way, that's, that's what the Old Testament prophesied God would do in the Messianic age. You, you might know that prophecy, Jeremiah 30, 31. The Lord said through Jeremiah, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with my people. It will not be like the old covenant I made with their fathers. They didn't keep that one. He said in the new covenant. He didn't say in the new covenant I'm going to get rid of the law. No. God doesn't change in those ways. He said, in the new covenant, I'm going to write my law on their hearts. It'll, it'll, be, it'll be something that happens on the inside. He said, I'll write my law on their hearts, for I will forgive all their wickedness and uncleanness. He just says, I, I'm going to so, so thoroughly forgive them and accept them and welcome them into my family that something's going to happen in their heart. And they'll begin to want to obey me. So I wonder if that's happened to you yet. 
Here's what I mean. Are, are, you, are you still thinking that somehow you have to change yourself so that God will love you? And so because of that, you either resent God, He's always giving me these rules, or you look down on others. Why can't they be as good as me? Or, or have, you, have you heard this message? That God, God is willing to pour out upon you more grace than you can ever imagine. More mercy than you'll ever need. Enough love to cover over every one of your sins. Just to give that to you freely because of everything Christ has done. You don't have to prove anything to God anymore. And you begin to follow Him and long to honor Him because He's your Father, because He loves you, right? You honor Him from the heart. That's what Christ wants to give to us today. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Jesus, that when we come to know your grace, your, no, your law is no longer, um, it's no longer a mirror in which we see all of our failures and our sin because you've taken away our failures and our sin. Your, your law is now a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. It shows us how to walk joyfully behind you, the one who loves us. We, we pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would do that miracle in each one of our hearts. We, we pray for any of us if we've begun to somehow make this mistake of using grace as an excuse for um, just sloppy discipleship. We pray that you'd call us back to want to honor you and live for you. We thank you that you are more than willing, more than willing to forgive every way we've failed and that your spirit is here to empower us to obey. Thank you for that in your name. Amen.